The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi. Thanks for tuning in today. And today, we are going to talk about mercury poisoning and the bad effects of those silver teeth fillings that we used to get and some people, unfortunately, still get, um, which is called dental amalgam. So we're talking about poison in the mouth. And my guest today is Laura Henze-Russell. She's an economist, and Laura's director of Hidden River Health Challenge at the Ocean River Institute. Hello, Laura. Hey, Rob. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm well, thanks. So uh, 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 let me... Um, just mentioned, in addition to an economist, I do social entrepreneurship, and for the last two years, pretty intensively, I've been focusing that on this challenge of how we bring to attention in the U.S. Um, uh, this problem of um, mercury that off-gasses from the silver fillings, um, and it's especially a problem for people of certain gene types. So what I've sort of done in other areas, I've for some reason I stumble upon a really tough challenge or issue that people aren't looking at as hard as they need to and sort of try to frame it in a way that makes sense to people um, and then gets them to act on it. So the current issue of um, really needing highlighting and change in our country um, which is really concerned about health and health care costs and uh, is um, how we can not be inadvertently, uh, slowly, stealthily um, poisoning people who don't, don't uh, process it well as they age. Well, I see that you're also a lifeguard, so you're very good at jumping in and rescuing people too, right? Yeah, you know, uh, I... My first job was teaching swimming, and then I did that for several years, and then I was a Bay lifeguard, and then they had Title IX, and they got rid of the height and weight and sex requirements, so I um, uh, worked really hard one summer and became an ocean lifeguard, and that took three tries to pass the test, Um, and I was lucky because I was guarding at a bay, and my supervisor was literally a marine drill sergeant, so uh, he got us in shape, and so I passed that. And then I went to work at the ocean, and um, then I was asked to be in New York, um, on Long Island, a civil service lifeguard examiner for Suffolk County. So I did that for a year, uh, lifeguarding at the ocean. Probably um, that and teaching swimming, my favorite jobs ever, 
Um, but I kind of moved on to other things because I had this expensive college degree and thought I needed to do more things with it. Um, and I've just renewed, now that I'm healthy again, I've renewed both my water safety instructor and my uh, uh, lifeguard credential. And given that I turned 60 this month and I was competing with 15 and 20-year-olds, I feel pretty good about that. Well, that's great. If I'm struggling, I'll call out for help, though. Okay, right. And so, but I have this lifeguard personality. And so when I found, you know, I was sort of sick for 20 years and had fibromyalgia and, you know, life was, you know, still great. I had a, you know, I have my husband, I have a child who's now grown up and has a job after college. But, you know, it it was a bit of a struggle being not as my old self. And, um, And then I had a year when I was just bizarrely, increasingly, you know, had everything, the wheels were coming off the bus, and it was extremely concerning and unpleasant, and um, uh, nobody knew what was going on, and I was just very, very lucky that uh, by chance one of the doctors I was seeing outside of my health plan, you know, after months finally heard somebody talk about these problems that can be caused by reactivity to dental materials, and I'm like, huh? You've got to be kidding yeah. Um, so I, and I'm, I come from a family of engineers and people who went to MIT, although I didn't. And, um, so you can kind of research things. So, you know, I looked into it. I talked to at least a half a dozen people he treated around the country. They all had, you know, problems like mine. They were all getting better. This was like, um, you know, at this point, extremely appealing because I had basically given up hope and, um, Lo and behold, I started to get better. I found something called a biologic dentist. In fact, I interviewed and met with three of them in Massachusetts. And and uh, then I found um, uh, went to my health plan and said, "Is there somebody in the plan that can I can work with so I don't have to pay for all this stuff myself?" One of the one of the hardest things and was shocking was I thought I had a great dental plan because my husband works for Harvard and. Um, they pay a high percentage, but in your molars, they only pay the percentage as if they were using for, for this dental amalgam stuff, which is cheaper. So even though I had this horrible reaction and, you know, it was now documented that uh, I couldn't tolerate it, um, I filed several appeals, but they were denied because, unfortunately, dental plans aren't subject to medical necessity. Um, they don't have the same standards that health plans uh, have to live up to, um, and this. As I've met people around the country who have similar problems, this is one of the hardest things. It's like um, health plans don't cover the teeth, and dental plans don't cover medical necessity. So we're between a rock and a hard place. Um, on the other hand, we're the lucky ones. Most people don't know why they're sick. They just kind of succumb to it and figure they have bad genes, which we do, and that they're unlucky. And the unlucky part is that you're exposed to various toxins that aren't good for your makeup and um and some of these can be separated and treated and you know like a miracle you can recover from diseases that people thought were life sentences Um, and so knowing this and having this lifeguard personality i really can't just sit on it i mean i kind of wish i could i could just you know um somehow uh, earn a lot of money and then go retire to aruba or something like that but I'm somewhat driven to help prevent people from going through the bad part of my experience and getting quicker to the good part, which is recovering um, health. Well, thank goodness you're so driven. That's important. (laughs) 
Now, I'm not so, sure my husband would agree, but... Well, you're alive, that's good, and you're not as mad as a hatter for mercury poisoning. <laughs> right, you're right. Um, and so was that the problem? Was mercury gassing out into you or something, or...? What happens, and, you know, they when this stuff was invented, this it's it's... It's been used for, oh gosh, approaching, you know, I think it was the early 1800s it was invented, and there have been various iterations. The first dentist that used it in the United States, they mixed mercury with coins and stuck it in people's teeth, and it, you know, it, it was a lot cheaper than gold, which they used at the time, and it, you know, it, it gave you immediate relief from pain, which was great, um, and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't, but a lot of people were getting poisoned, and so I believe the original brothers were actually run out of the country. Um, they used to, you know, they go from town to town, and then people would, if they had these, back then you could get an immediate toxicity reaction because they were much less careful with it all. Um, and the original early dental associations were adamant against this stuff because they're like, well, you know, mercury, everyone knew mercury in medicine at this point was not particularly good. They were learning that it shouldn't be in you know, there were downsides of being treated for syphilis with mercury and, you know, painting yourself in mercurochrome, which we still did when I was a kid. I mean, there's, uh, and there's different forms of mercury, but what's bad with mercury is when it off-gasses. Um, and the challenge is they kept, you know, tinkering and putting, getting new patents and all this stuff. So, and thinking they'd improved mercury and, and amalgam to the point that it was hard as a rock and, you know, would never change. And it kind of looks that way. But, um, I mean, you being a scientist know more about this than me, but things are not always what they seem, and um, it does, uh, particularly with heat and abrasion, um, which is rubbing, you know, off-gas. So there's a fair amount of off-gassing when it's um, installed. There's a heck of a lot of off-gassing when it's drilled out with a high-speed drill. And there's unfortunately off-gassing... when you chew or grind your teeth or drink hot liquids or take a shower or go in a sweat lodge or a sauna, um, or if you have an accident where you knock your jaw together. Um, So now the reason, the challenge about all this is it was one of the many things that was grandfathered when the Food and Drug Administration was given um, the authority to regulate medical devices in I believe it was 1976. Now, it's an interesting story there. I went back and looked a little bit at the history of the FDA, and in 1906, they created what I believe was called the Pure Food and Drug um, Act, an agency. And then by 1938, it was expanded to cover, it was then the um, uh, Food and Drug Administration, but it covered food, drugs, and cosmetics, but they dropped the word pure. Um, so there was a lot of, you know, experimentation and development of food products, and they didn't want to misrepresent that. So it's no longer, you know, an agency that's concerned with purity, just um, safety. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah, that's interesting. And then, um, then there was a push to add um, radiation to it because, as you can imagine, after the um, atomic bomb, uh, oh. people started looking at... Um, ways to use x-rays both diagnostically and for treatment, and, but some people did it, you know, maybe got carried away or used high, too high doses. So that was regulated in 68, and as we all know now, um, you know, x-rays and um, uh, radiation treatments is, is a part of medicine, um, and that's highly regulated. 
So in 62, um, it was President John F. Kennedy who um, uh, filed an act to regulate medical devices because with the, you know, the march of injuries and, and the march of, of technological progress, people were starting to develop things that you would put in people, you know, if in, you know to pin bones together or remember the, uh, the first artificial heart and all these other, you know, body parts that... Um, so uh, it matters what they're made out of because if we react to them, you know, if our immune system rejects them, that's not good. So he filed in 62 um, an act to regulate um, these medical devices. And then I've kind of learned in all the different fields I've worked in that Congress is very um, lumpy and episodic, so they t- rarely return to a topic within a 20-year time frame. And... Um, they also get distracted by other things. So what happened is that it was 14 years before the Medical Devices Act was passed in 76. And I'm told that one of the things that slowed it down was the big thalidomide problem, which was more prevalent in Europe, but these drugs that people were taking were causing infants to be born without arms and legs, and that was pretty serious. So all the attention you know, flipped over to the drug side and... Um, attention that equally needed to be put on medical devices just wasn't focused on for this 14-year period, and then it passed. But there were so many substances, sub, sorry, substance, substances yeah. that um, obviously some of the industries lobbied and got this provision where, well, if something's been used for, in this case, you know, 100 years, it must be safe, so let's grandfather it. And so a lot of things were grandfathered, including... Um, you know, tobacco and, well, that's not a medical device, but, um, you know, lead and, you know, asbestos and, and mercury and all these things that, well, hey, they've been used by, you know, by people for decades or hundreds of years, so how, how can they be dangerous? Um, no. And unfortunately, mercury, well, dental amalgam was put in this category. And, I mean, the, if you, I, I've, probably mentioned this, but the ADA was actually founded 160 years ago precisely to promote dental amalgam because while some of the other dental associations were against it, um, they saw it, you know, these dentists were seeing it as innovation. It seemed to work well. You know, they were improving formulations so, you know, people weren't being run out of town. And um, uh, so this was the pro-amalgam trade group that is now the only to my understanding, um, dental association, that's one can license dentists to practice in the country and is also the only one that is um, authorized to run dental schools and teach dentistry. And so there's an interesting situation because as environmental awareness of the danger or the risks to the environment and ultimately to people from um, the increase of mercury in the environment has grown uh, and as there's been increased development of alternative, you know, safer dental materials, half of the dentists in the U.S. don't use it anymore um, and half still do. And then the other thing is kind of an, there's also an age cohort issue, which is people who are midlife and older, it's pretty much all they used to have. So, you know, everyone midlife and older, like unless they have great teeth, has it or has had it or has had it, you know, in and replaced and replaced and then sometimes replaced with something else. Um, 
And so there's a lot of it in people. And as you know, not everybody has problems with their teeth. So it's been confounding and hard to establish definitively that it harms people when it doesn't apparently harm everyone. Uh, And so a lot of what I've learned in the last, you know, year and a half has been that these things, the way your body reacts to different substances is mediated by your gene variants, your gene types. Um, And, you know, it's kind of like, and the way, at least on this dental amalgam that the FDA regulates it is based on averages. So it assumes everybody has the average, you know, sort of good gene type and everybody has the average number of fillings or less and, um, and, uh, we are bell curves. You know, some of us um, have uh, genes that don't methylate well, which has to do with regrowing nerves, and we don't detox well, which is so things that our bodies don't like get stuck there rather than getting passed out of them, or we have glitches in our immune systems or metabolic systems. And what's interesting is you can still have those glitches and be perfectly healthy as long as you don't have stressors or things that then get stuck and create inflammation and right, inflammation show up. problem. Yeah. So and it's but you know Laura, I'm still it, learning more. So anyways, a problem I that carried away. If people get mercury poisoning, they might blame some other source than the teeth, right? Isn't it hard to tie it back to the teeth? Well you know, it's this is the difference between science and social science. Um you know, in social well, science, right, the industry is going to deny it because they're going to say it's from somewhere else. And right, have- and it, so this is this is the thing I say about that. And being a social scientist, you know, one of the things I remember that was, you know, very when I was studying, you know, younger, or whatever. Um, that, uh, for example, Daniel Patrick Moynihan had come up with this pretty important, um, lear- you know, learning that um, single parent kids had higher rates of poverty, and you know, this was you know, what exactly the cause was, was maybe not so important, but there was a strong association between, you know, kids from single parent families and poverty. And so these people were more, kids were more vulnerable and needed, you know, extra supports. Now to prove that, they didn't put all the families in the room and shoot the fathers. And not being a scientist, to me, that seems to be the kind of proof they want that, you know, that it can only you have to look at one variable and only one variable at a time, and then you have to isolate, you know, a control group from the test group, and the you know they'd have to eat the same thing and live in the same place and, you know, have the same exposures to to infectious and other substances and the so that's not real life. But be that it was made, that's sort of my understanding as a non scientist view of scientific proof. On the other well, hand, what that, what that means is that um, for a long time we don't know the source of the problems because of all this, you know, funny stuff going on. Right. Now, I am told there's now a test available that will determine what, I think the word is species of mercury um, is in your body, so it will determine if you have methylmercury, which I think is from the fish, and, you know, or ah, yes. the elemental mercury, which is if you ate your thermometer, um, or uh, you know the the off gassing mercury from the fillings. Um, so, but now this, that test is of course not covered by insurance, and it's not well known. Unfortunately, the standard test that people do if they have 
a suspicion and if they have like neurological problems um, is just to measure circulating blood and urine, you know, the mercury in that. And the problem with that, and this is something that most doctors don't seem to understand yet, is that if you have a gene glitch so that you kind of, I don't know, hoard the mercury, if it gets bound up in your cells, I'm I'm told it binds tightly to electrons, then then it doesn't circulate. So you'll show very low levels of mercury in your blood and urine, but it's very high in some of your, you know, organs and, you know, cells and whatever, where it's doing a lot of damage. Um, So there are other tests, but again, most doctors don't know about them, don't do them. I'm not sure insurance covers them, so you have to shell out and you have to be seeing someone who will do them. And then it's like, well, lo and behold, okay, you know, oops, you do have high levels of mercury and maybe cadmium and, you know, maybe lead and, God, you know, aluminum. There's a lot of things we can have high levels of. Um, and I guess the other thing I would say is there's been more research about what's called the synergistic impact of toxins. Uh, Laura, great- we're going to have to take a break before you go into the synergistic impact because that's going to be a little more complicated. I'm talking with Laura Russell, and we'll be right back after this break. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hey, we're going back to the river today with our Hidden River uh, health challenger named Laura Russell. And Laura's been telling us about the uh, 
all the bad news and, and challenges of uh, the, those silver mercury fillings in your teeth, if you have the silver ones, called dental amalgam. Laura, how can people learn more about your work and how can they contact you and stuff? Uh, sure. Well, uh, we have a website that um, is uh, uh, available at www.oceanriver.org forward slash hidden river dot php. Um, we also have a Facebook page, which is at www.facebook.com forward slash hidden river. Um, and I do some tweeting as well at Laura H. Russell. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah. And I, I, I guess I needed to say that these gene glitches that um, there's about six that at least I've read about that um, make people not clear mercury well. And the biggest, uh, the largest one of those affects about one out of five people. So um, since the others, I haven't actually got quantified them yet. But so we're talking at a minimum, you know, one out of five people as they age is going to have a problem that they will probably have no clue is related to dental amalgam. But what I say is if you have any health issues, chronic ones, whether it's, you know, um, arthritis or allergies or, uh, you know, immune problems or, you know, there's various neurological issues or some cognitive challenges or some rashes or, you know, um, organ damage, heart problems, it's worth looking into your genes and your toxins. And um, when we do that, we understand some of both the keys to chronic disease and also some of the pathways to, to restoring um, our health. And mm. this draws on a lot of sort of breaking and, you know, very well, you know, well-established um, research in various fields. And the whole, everybody's sort of converging on the fact that, yeah, inflammation in the body is really, really bad. And, you know, it's sort of, there's infectious causes of inflammation, but there's also um, toxicological, you know, just toxin things that aren't good for us that cause inflammation. And because the cost of learning about our genes is now so much lower, it's it's just kind of tragic that uh, healthcare isn't systematically screening people for gene glitches and for the toxins which are just legion in our environment. Um, the the book I was about to mention, it's um, a medical doctor named um, Dr. Richard I. Horowitz, who practices in upstate New York, and it's all it's sort of a um, bit of a phenomena right now, both among uh, the regular reading public and also among doctors. Uh, he recently spoke at uh, Mass General Hospital, and my own um, internist had, had heard him and said that there were large crowds, and he did rounds and everything like that. And so the book is called, um, what's it called again? Uh, Why Can't I Get Better? Um, Solving the Mystery of Lyme and Chronic Disease. And so uh, there are a lot of toxins, and, you know, again, I've learned a lot about this in the last two years. So there's biotoxins, and so these Lyme spirochetes and all the co-infections, you know, those are biotoxins. There's lots of other little things that slither around in us or scurry around that, you know, can also act as biotoxins, um, you know, you've got your beneficial bacteria and then you've got your not-such-great ones. Um, and then there's chemotoxins, so all kinds of chemicals from the things that 
you know, you might take because you need chemotherapy to just chemicals in our foods or in our cleaning products that we, you know, or our, our personal care products or our shampoos. And again, some some people don't react to, others do. Then there's these, uh, they call them metallotoxins and the heavy, you know, classically the heavy metals. Um, you know, some are more inert. Most people are fine with gold, but uh, I was just recently patch tested for a bunch of things and lo and behold, I have a little bit of a gold allergy and cobalt mm. and chromium. Um, and, uh, but, you know, mercury is, is, I'm told it's the second most neurotoxic element after the radio, you know, the radiation ones. Um, so, you know, it's, it's very serious, but aluminum is, yeah, you know, having a lot of the stuff. Yeah. You know, lead's not great. I don't know why it just took so long for them to get to, to the ear, except that there's such a strong lobby um, that is adamant on maintaining its safety come hell or high water, and they've been spending massive amounts of money and have, you know, PR campaigns and, you know, spin people and lawyers and strategies to just make anyone who questions its safety in the United States have the most difficult time getting through to the media, getting through to the general public, and for what? You know, for something that is now banned in five other nations that is now, um, there are warnings and restrictions and you have to sign before you can get it in Canada and a lot of Europe and even some emerging and developing countries. And, you know, science, as you know, knows no borders. So the fact that things work differently in the U.S., that it's safe here and not other places, it's just, it's, it's just, you know, it's kind of like um, the emperor has no clothes or, you know, the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. It's like, it's time. Let's please stop the, you know, stop the charade and just get people healthier, faster. The yeah, you pointed out that, you pointed out that the ADA really had an investment in these mercury silver fillings. And, you know, I could think they would just get on with the newest stuff and be promoting ceramics and things because that's what... Most of the public think they're they're pretty much being offered the non-silver fillings. Yeah, you know, I guess it's apparently ADA caught. has really bought into this, right? They are like lock, stock, and barrel. They lobbied so hard to so in this international mercury treaty that was just signed in um, Minamata, Japan, which was, it was a giant mercury poisoning accident. Um, it's a really yeah. big deal, and you know, nations have made commitments to phase it out, dial it down, stop using it. But the only place where they're really on a very slow and not even timetable track is for this dental amalgam. And Here in the U.S. of A., aren't we wonderful? Yeah, and if the AD had its way, there would be no even phase out of this stuff. And, it would you know, just be there, right. They claim that it has to be used in some clinical situations, but I've talked to dentists who say, look, I've been doing this for 25 years, and I've never needed to use it. I guess you have to master the technique. Um, and, you know, the health the dental plans either need to be taken over by health plans or they need to be aligned with health plans so that what we have now is because it's cheaper, it's what the dental plans prefer and what they'll pay, you know, more, they'll pay more of because it's cheaper and you have to make up the bigger difference in if you need the stuff that's not as... Uh, not as inexpensive, but 
it causes massive externalities. And so the costs are shifted onto patients like me. It's shifted onto our employers when we, you know, have to take sick leave and because our health costs go up because more people are getting sick earlier and longer and later. And um, it's shifted onto governments because they pick up the tab when everybody's money runs out and, you know, or if it's public employees. So it just... So, no, getting sick is not sense. good. It's never good. And it's a social justice issue because people in the military have no choice. They have to go the cheapest route, which is the dental amalgam. Yeah. No, I, I reservations, I same sure. thing. I did or, read one article that's not... It's, it's, sometimes they're using alternatives in the military, so I hope they do more of that. Um, oh, good. Good. There's but, hope. Uh, but in general, it's, being, it's heavily used in the military. It's heavily used in the Indian Health Service. And, you know, yeah. think about all the Native Americans then going sweat, sweat lodges to purify yourself and you're actually toxifying yourself. That's not good. Oh, gosh. Uh, and then, you know, Medicaid likes it because it's cheap, you know. Um, so it's, it's just Got bad. It. So, um, so you came to the Ocean River Institute, and if people want to see your work, they can just go to oceanriver.org and hit on partners on the top, and you'll see that Laura's one of the partners with your Hidden River health challenge. Um, why did you establish that here, and what are your goals? Well, the, um, uh, sure. I mean, again, when I first learned about this, I thought this is going to be so easy to fix. All you have to do is let people know that this isn't good for some people. You know, what could be easier? And then it was like hitting a buzzsaw. It was like, you know, it's like, oh, thank God I have a great dental plan. They'll pay for it. Nope, sorry. So it was like Alice in Wonderland. Nothing made sense. Things that were going to be easy, that were hard, things that you thought were making you healthy, we're making you sick, you know. So it was like, okay, we need to sort this through and we need to educate people because, um, you know, I I thought I was an environmentalist. You know, I worked on Earth Day when I was in high school. I knew mercury was dangerous. I didn't know there was mercury in this stuff, you know. I didn't know there was any risk whatsoever. Uh, I can't understand how this passes international law standards that we can put in stuff that's dangerous, not tell us, and we don't even have written informed consent for what's classified as a medical device. I mean, I sort of feel like I'm in the modern version of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. And, but all, all I can tell from, you know, and I've, I've spent some, a little time talking to lawyers, I need to spend more because, you know, this seems to be where this problem is going to be solved with this thank God there's a lawsuit filed, is like, I, I know, I don't know. The law, just there are parts of it that are wonderful and elegant, and there are parts that make no sense, so then we have to change them. You know, it's like we really cannot let this stuff fly under the radar screen, get a free pass, and be harming, you know, one out of five people as they age. And then it's actually this a certain type of gene type that for young boys, if they get amalgam, they get immediate kidney damage and neurobehavioral deficits. And this, you know, and this is something which... Yikes! Yeah, and it's like, so, and this just shows you how intractable this problem was. There was a study done a a while back uh, by this group led by James Woods, a very famous toxicologist at University of Washington. And his original research found that... um, they did this children's amalgam trial. It was kind of that perfect control study in an orphanage in Portugal, and I think there was an off-branch in, in New England, maybe northern New England. And so they found there were no impacts. But his data was then, um, you know, made accessible, and other people started making finer cuts at it. And wouldn't you know it, 
people found that if you, excuse me, separated the kids by gene type, um, that there was this one gene that had this kidney damage and or porphyrin damage, which is related to the kidneys, um, and and measurable, observable by just simple tests, you know, neurobehavioral deficits. So, but he couldn't get the retractions published in the U.S. They twice in 2012 and 2013, the retractions have been published in Canadian journals. And when the press releases are put out, they don't get published in the U.S. So everyone you talk to says, well, what about the children's amalgam trial? It showed no problem. And you have to say, well, guess what? The lead, you know, the research team has retracted the findings twice, but you haven't read about it. And this happened wow. again. There was a study of um, uh, Thomas Duklinski, Duklinski and a colleague from Yale School of Medicine, you know, not a fly-by-night operation. Yeah. He looked at um, prescription records for dentists compared to carefully matched controls in Connecticut. And it's somewhat scary, particularly if you're a dentist. Um, they found uh, significantly higher prescription use in four areas that they studied, neurological, um, cardiovascular, uh, respiratory, and psychiatric. And, you know, we're talking multiples. Um, and this study got rejected by a lot of journals in the U.S., was published in Canada, press release went out, nobody picked it up. It's kind of like um, the third rail of, of the media and politics and it's, I don't know why, but it's the third rail. People look at you like you have three heads if, they, if you, you know, tell them that you had mercury poisoning. On the other hand, some people say, well, of course, that stuff is a neurotoxin. I thought we banned it years ago. They're still using it in people's teeth. So we kind of have this split personality when it comes both, you know, in terms of what the public knows and thinks about it and our whole regulatory system. Um, and... So Hidden River tries to educate the public. We reach out. We're doing, you know, some some faith-based work because um, everybody's concerned about health and uh, faith traditions have some interesting um, roots in things about maintaining, you know, the body as a uh, as a temple and being careful about what foods and dietary restrictions you have and into cleansing and purification and that seemed kind of interesting to contrast with the way, you know, modern medicine treats the body as kind of like something to be, you know, unfortunately now when you go to the doctor, they're tethered to their computer screen, they type in symptoms and out spits prescriptions and, you know, or, you know, the authorization to see physical therapy or, you know, obviously if you break something you need to see and, you know, get, get it fixed or, you know, certain things require surgery, but they don't, very often, as much as they'd like, um, focus on health and and just that kind of systematic screening of, you know, what might sure if, you, if you're sneezing like crazy, they'll send you to an allergist. But you know, you have you have um, arthritis; they're going to send you to a rheumatologist. They're not going to send you to, you know, an allergist or to do a toxicological screen. I don't know why not. In fact, I would do them at regular intervals. I don't know why we can't screen people the way we take their blood every time. You know, it's like, can do your blood pressure. It's regular intervals. Yeah. Let's screen people for toxins. And at least once, let's screen for the major glitches in the major pathways that impact, you know, health and disease as you age. And I think everybody will be healthier. I think a lot less people will need 
costly, expensive, extensive care. And um, so that's something I'm really um, promoting now. And I've gotten involved in, for example, um, attending the Mass Health Policy Commission meetings. And this is a a body that was set up to really focus on health care cost and also quality and improving it because well, that's really important, Laura. What you're doing is so important, and it's, it's amazing. I go to the doctors, and they're prodding around my back end, and they won't look in my mouth to see if i got any silver fillings. Yeah, I mean, you know, the ultimate solution, what I'm sort of pushing for, is we need integrated health care. You know, one of the things, you know, being 60, I know that once I hit yeah. the Medicare age, you know, guess what? Your health plan is no longer going to cover, and it sort of doesn't all that much now, but it's kind of like... That's terrible. Laura, from I'm the neck up and the foot down, it's like, no, that's, you know, that's you're on your own dime because nobody gets dental when they're retired, or very few people do. Oh, but the dear. problem is, is our Laura, dental plan... Laura, we're out of time. Oh, I'm gonna take oh, a, okay. Laura, I need to take a quick break. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi. We're talking with the director of the Hidden River Health Challenge at the Ocean River Institute, Laura Russell. If you want more information, oceanriver.org. And at the top of the page, hit Partners, and you'll see Laura there with her Hidden River Health Challenge as one of the partners. Laura, you were telling us about what's happening locally 
uh, I guess, here in Massachusetts. Yeah, so I was mentioning that um, uh, I've been going to uh, meetings and beginning to talk with commissioners and staff at the Massachusetts Health Policy Commission. Their mandate is to um, look at our cost trends and um, strategize about ways to uh, help bring the cost curve down in Massachusetts. We actually have the highest per capita health care costs in the nation, um, and uh, they have a grants program to help you know hospitals and um, you know make changes to that will result in better quality, lower cost care. And um, so it's fascinating because um, what's they're doing wonderful stuff. And as I look at the whole picture together. Um, there is a challenge, and the challenge, and this is always a challenge in every field when you're looking at rebooting it, is that um, the biggest problems are never the elephants that are in the room. They're the elephants that aren't even in the room. And so because dentistry is seen as sort of a sidecar of medicine, you know, a sort of you can just cut off the head and, you know, cut off the mouth and let the specialists deal with that, and we don't have to worry about its insurance, we don't have to worry about you know, what they're doing in there. Um, we just, you know, hope that people uh, aren't getting horrific infections and, and, and you know, we, we trust their judgment. But because we're not doing systematic biocompatibility screenings for dental work, that's something else you can do. You can get your blood screened for what you do and don't react to and because people don't know really much about their genes and their, their toxic profiles. Um, what dentists are doing is in too many cases creating problems. So I, if we had an integrated um, healthcare system, first of all, it would be whole body. So they wouldn't say, you know, sorry, we're not going to fix your hearing or your eyesight or your teeth or your feet because it would be whole body. And two, it would be integrated in terms of by law now, a health insurance has to cover uh, mental health care. And by law, we'll all be much better off if health insurance had to cover uh, certain levels of dental care um, because then all the incentives are aligned and it's really important for the health insurer to make sure that the dental work is promoting the health of the person both immediate and longer term as they age. Um, and without without elephant not in the room, things aren't aligned. For example, the state just passed, you know, this whole package of, of reform. So there's this um, you know, health uh, prevention trust fund, and there's this um, health policy commission, and there's an office of patient protection. But wouldn't you know it, they didn't include dental. So I can't go to the office of patient protection and say, help me, my dental plan won't pay for medically necessary work to restore my health because it's not mm. here in the statute. So, um, and I actually had testified on all of this to... Um, uh, Mass HHS um, a year ago in December, uh, and I think the problem was the next week um, Secretary Bigby left, and there was a hiatus, and a lot of people who I had been working with at DPH to educate about the risks of dental amalgam and the need to have a more holistic approach, you know, left, got reassigned, other jobs, and that all just got lost completely. And so a year later when I, you know, I'm in a position to follow up again, um, it's like back to square one. So I did, um, something happened that sort of spurred me to action again, and I did go directly to the governor's office and say, look, we've got a real problem here. 
I had evidence of a real problem. And uh, um, he uh, signed um, some people at uh, DPH and EOHHS to start to meet. So we had a good first meeting. I'm looking forward to more. And then uh, have had uh, a couple of fascinating um, uh, times attending the Mass Health Policy Commission meetings. And I've you know, made remarks at the end, and people are quite receptive and nodding, and I've had, you know, informal conversations, but we're going to need the legislature to, I think, give them the authority and fix some of these other problems um, just to integrate um, dental into health care and make sure people have the same rights for medically necessary care in dental care. And frankly, we need to track what's happening in dentistry because no, it's not in the databases when people look at health problems and they're trying to figure right. out what factors are are, are you know, leading to higher disease rates. Um, nobody looks at dental, and until we fix that, you know, we, we just don't have the right elephants in the room. Um, so I do have two bills pending that, you know, are really kind of baby steps but important steps in Massachusetts because it's until the FDA acts, we need to do something to protect um, our residents. So um, uh, Senator Brian Joyce um, at Senate Bill uh, 1026, and it's a, a very simple bill to require informed consent for the use of dental amalgam, uh, in, which contains mercury in dental procedures. Now, um, there are a handful of states that have laws like this. Uh, there was some question whether since the FDA classified amalgam in 2009 and only made it class two, whether states are, whether it's legal to regulate consumer labeling. I've inquired with FDA and recently got something back uh, in email form, which to me reads that, yes, they can, but I'll obviously have to have a lawyer look at it. Um, the other bill is filed by um, uh, Representative uh, Louis Kafka, and it is um, for a basically a commission to look at the problems um, in terms of health risks from dental amalgam and how in a comprehensive way might one go about, um, you know, coming up with a, a, an action plan to solve them. I'm hoping now with the Mass Health Policy Commission we might be able to, you know, short circuit and, and get some of that stuff more quickly um, because as opposed to setting up a commission, which has to figure out what to do, I think maybe we can we can figure out what to do and then hopefully get it passed rather than take longer to get to yes. Um, and then, uh, for example, there's a bill that's moving um, now through uh, the House and Senate. It's called an Act to Eliminate Racial and Ethnic Health Disparities in the Commonwealth. And it's great, but I really hope we can get um, dental integrated into it, because once again, they're just looking at health care disparities, not dental care. And they're also looking at housing and transportation and stuff like that. And then I recently came across from... Um, Vermont, there's an interesting bill that's more of an environmental bill around dental uh, mercury, which is worth taking a look at, and I actually wanted to call it to your attention, so I'll do that um, within the next uh, day or two. Um, so, And then there was a Women's Health Summit on Monday that was uh, quite excellent, and um, Dr. Paula Johnson from Brigham and Women's and uh, a whole team she's working with uh, have done an excellent report on the need to put even more attention on how um, uh, women need to be included as 
you know, study subjects in, in medical research. There was a bill you know, 20 years ago, a NIH Revitalization Act that called for it. So it's done somewhat more. So, you know, you can sort of, I don't think they gave a grade, but if you look back, I don't know whether we, you know, the U.S. should get a C or a B plus or whatever, but we don't get have an A at looking at how gender differences affect how people react to, you know, not only uh, diseases, but uh, various drugs. And of course, I want to add medical devices, which um, fillings are to that category. And I think if we want to be really forward thinking and use the current learning and technology to get as far ahead as we can, we need to also add um, not just gender, but genes and toxins into the mix. And they seemed pretty receptive to that thinking. Um, yeah, that's so important, the genes and the toxins. That's how you started the program was if you get the wrong pair of genes, you're in trouble, right? Right, and so things vary by gender, and they also vary by other gene pathways. And so please, let's be smart. I mean, I tell you, industry is figuring this out, and, and you know, but why make it hard? We should make it just happen as fast as possible. So I guess this brings me to the last topic, um, which is Laura, that... Laura, we have about three minutes, so maybe... Sure. Um, I wanted to urge people to look at your website because there's a trove of information there. Yes, um, and the other thing I'll mention, yeah. I've, got a, I've also got to put some more up there. And in the interim, while I'm attempting to do that, if people want, there is yesterday a new lawsuit that was filed against the FDA for its failure to address the risk of mercury in dental fillings. Um, if people tweet me or email me, um, I can send both that press release and I can even send a copy of the lawsuit. I'm not a party to it because it has a long history that predates my knowledge of my but job. But who are the parties? Who's filing that suit? Uh, there's a group called the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. There's a group called Moms Against Mercury. Um, there's a group called uh, COMED and there's a group called... Uh, Dental Amalgam Mercury Solutions, which counsels injured patients and has counseled over 100,000 people in the last few decades. Um, and again, it's a tiny tip of the iceberg because most people have no clue that their chronic disease might be linked to um, challenges like mercury and synergistically also it might be linked to you know mold or other biotoxins. Um, so let's kind of look at the whole big pole of whack. The problem is the so great. You got it wrong. It's so great you got such champions as those organizations you mentioned. They're not little bad flies. Those are major organizations that are taking this very seriously. Right. Um, and so what we're asking is for Congress, the Obama administration, state governments, and the media to take it seriously because everything you learned was the product of spin and or and or is outdated. So everyone needs to take off the blinders. I say suspend belief, suspend disbelief, and just focus, 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 and you know, learn what's current, and then um, help us all get to get to health. And if listeners want to contact their legislators or the president, can they contact you first for how to do that? Yes, we also have some online petitions: um, one to the president, one to um, uh, you know the Surgeon General. So uh, we should, we'll probably be putting up one to Congress. So. It's really important, and your state legislators. And I would ask for every candidate running for every office, ask what they're going to do about this. We launched a call for Surgeon General's report on dental amalgam. Will they support that call? 
um, because uh, that's what we do when there's a, a problem where you're concerned maybe you risk, we ask for a Surgeon General's report. I was told preliminarily that they were not going to do one. Now, with this lawsuit and with the uh, injured patients who are new ones who are coming forward, to not immediately order a Surgeon General's report and not to consider a ban on its use until it comes through is just tragic. Uh, The other thing is um, people need to look into safe removal. If they do have problems with mercury, again, you can screen for it. You don't want to run to a dentist who's going to go in there with a high-speed drill. That will make you more sick. You need to look at um, how biologic dentists remove it and what techniques they use and what special equipment and make sure that's in your dental office or go to another one. And dentists need to get trained on this. Rather than denying it or putting their heads in their sand, there's training offered, and that's key to keep us, again, to get us healthier sooner. Laura, this is phenomenal. Thank you for taking so much time to talk with us. Well, thank you, and uh, thanks to the listeners, and um, please do do what, what you can to get healthy and keep your family healthy, and uh, we, we appreciate your help and support on this effort. Is there an email where people can reach you at? Yeah, it's um, laurarussell2 at comcast.net or laura at oceanriver.org. That's yeah. probably the easier one, laura at yeah. oceanriver.org. And for more information, Laura, OceanRiver.org, and hit Partners or Hidden River, and you'll get there. Laura, thank you so much. I hope we can all come together and shine a spotlight on this problem and bring attention to just holding government accountable and taking better care of us. Right. Well said. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, great. That's it for this, this episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Thanks a lot for listening, and please stay healthy. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Yeah.